Today's reading, uh, are Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 to 28, Mark chapter 14, verse 22 to 24, and 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 25. They can be found on pages 917, 938, and 1060 on the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Matthew 26, verse 26 to 28. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 14, verse 22 to 24. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-25 For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The word of the Lord. Would be using them to grow us and to make us 
even more so, people in a community that looks like your children and your family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It happens from time to time. Uh, innocently enough, in churches with people just like you and me, in places just like this, that uh, Christians and churches begin to downplay communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, or, or Holy Communion or the Holy Supper. Whatever the case may be, they're, they're, this just happens, and it's happened throughout history where it begins to be sort of downplayed and um, brought in some ways to the periphery. And, and so then I suspect that it's not a coincidence that in many churches, many places where people like us gather together around faith and around the message of Jesus, um, that there begins to be rumblings uh, and suggestions that we, we kind of need something, we're missing something. We, and, and so we say to ourselves, you know, um, perhaps we need... Um, some, some really good music. Perhaps we need lots of instruments. Perhaps we need really loud music. Perhaps we need really professional sounding music. And someone says, you know, I go to my church and it's amazing because this, it, this it's like I met my favorite rock band's concert. And it's just, quality is amazing and I'm just, I get really revved up. Or maybe in another community they say, you know, you really need something and so maybe we should have drama and uh, maybe we should have dancers. All good things, all good things. And then and we say, you know, then I'm really inspired when I go to my church. And then somebody else maybe says, um, you know, we need, I've heard that this, is, this happens, I've never seen it, we need fog machines. <laughs> so that it's really the mystery kind of and the, you know, the spiritual nature of things is very physically present and I feel like I'm in the clouds with God or I don't know what, what it feels like. I'm kind of guessing there. And yet all along, and I, I absolutely, I say, hey, that's, that's all innocent enough, and those are human instincts and coming out, and you and I might find ourselves in the same place wanting those things. Yet all along here, we see, and up on the screen and in your Bibles, if you were flipping through, you see the passages that were read that show us very clearly in the New Testament that it's very well attested. We intentionally read kind of the, some of the same things over and over just to kind of show you that this was... This was a very clear, in a sense, instituting of the Lord's Supper or communion by Jesus. That Jesus gave us this thing. All along we've had this sort of treasure as a church. This thing that is there exactly for what we're often reaching for. You know, something to stir our hearts. Something visceral. Something real. Something we can look at and touch and feel. And there we've had it all along in the Lord's Supper. Jesus seemed to be breaking bread all the time with his disciples. It seemed to be something he did. And, and, and another layer to it was that when he was saying those words that we read, when he was saying, this is my body, take, eat, remember, and believe, he was holding up in the very middle of the sacred Jewish, Jewish uh, uh, ceremony of the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And he's holding this thing up that has all these meanings about the salvation story of this people. 
as they were brought out of Egypt, and were, they're hearkening back to their identity. And when Jesus does that, really, it can only be understood, if it's not true, it can only be understood as the most sacrilegious, blasphemous thing he could possibly do as a good first century Jew and say, hold up that bread that points back to God's work in Egypt and say, this is my body. As if to say, I will now reinterpret the whole history of a people and say, I'm at the center of it. Wow. It just reminds you that Christianity is very vulnerable on these kinds of points, where Jesus is not just maybe in the middle, kind of a good teacher with some good things. He's either crazy or he's the son of God. That's kind of, I just want to point out and hold that up and say, he was saying, I'm at the center of the Jewish history as a people. And I want you now to reinterpret all of it as pointing towards me. And he wanted to give it a new meaning. And so, so when he appeared after his resurrection to some of his followers, for some reason, I don't really understand why, but they were, they were kept from recognizing him as they walked along the road uh, to Emmaus. But it was, and then all of a sudden, once he sat down at the table with them and he was breaking bread, then they recognized him. They recognized him at the breaking of bread. So this is all around Jesus. It's, it's, it's coming out of him. He's describing it. He's, he's giving it to us as something to do for those who would follow him. And the Hybrid Catechism, which is what we're looking at during this month, when it talks about this, it's trying to collect all of these impulses, all of these things that are in Scripture, and give us, sort of look at it all and say, how do we make sense and how do we summarize what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper? This thing that's like a gift to us from God to help us uh, be sure and believe that he's real. And so this is what question and answer. I'll read uh, 75 and 79. I'll just read these two, even though there's more that relate to the Lord's Supper. Let me read these, and I think they're on the screen if we are able to pull up the slides. Okay, there they are. So here's question and answer 75. How does the Lord's Supper remind you and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? In this way... Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup. With this command, he gave this promise. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. Question and answer 79. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood? Or the new covenant in his blood. There's some, some verbiage difference, isn't there? From what's up there. Subtle differences in versions, I just realized. Christ has good reason for these words. Does that match up? I'll read it from up there. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood. As surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, 
and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Throughout the Catechism, we see these words talk about assurance and comfort and benefit. And especially when we come to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the language is strong. As sure as. Um, I passed by the restrooms in the back of Soul Collective today. And do you know in the bathrooms there's often that little very thin piece of tissue paper that you can use to put on the toilet seat? You've seen this. I noticed, I couldn't help but noticing as I'm approaching this topic today, that the package of these things, uh, the particular brand was called Rest Assured. <laughs> and a very, very wonderful font going across the box that holds these little tissue papers for the toilet. Rest Assured. It caught my eye because that, that word, assured, that, that, that sort of sense of it. Now, in the bathroom, I don't think we're getting really much life assurance from these tiny pieces of tissue paper. Can I get an amen? <laughs> All right. So, so maybe a bad illustration, you know, but preachers were always reaching for illustrations, right? But the, the, um, the Lord's Supper is exactly that kind of, it's, it's a really weighty thing that's there for us. It's not flimsy. It's not just something that you kind of brush off and say, oh, whatever. It's there, sitting with us, constantly trying to tell us God is as real as this bread. Your place before God and your identity as a beloved child of God is as certain, rock solid. It's as sure as this chewing that you're doing right now as you participate in the Lord's Supper. We need that because most of the time, and I think the Bible understands this, I think God definitely understands this, that most of the time life is not going to feel like you're walking along holding God's hand. And you can feel God's fingers in between yours. And you can feel the warmth. God's not giving you a physical hug every morning. If he is, tell me the secret <laughs> to your ways and how you've come upon this. But most of us are not experiencing God that way. The catechism knows this. The Bible knows this. God's know, God knows that this is not how life is going to be, even as faithful as you might be. You're not going to be constantly going from one mountaintop experience to another. And so the Lord's Supper is there, like a, like a steady, not like a big flash in the pan, not a flashy experience, but it's there like a slow and steady drip of fresh, pure water into the bucket of your heart. It's there just to, to stay there. It's slow and steady. It's not quick and flashy. And it's more like a formative practice, shaping you even when it's low-key, even when you're distracted and not paying attention, even when it's boring. It's shaping you over time, which is why I think if you downplay it and put it over here as something that you kind of pull in once a quarter because you have to or once a month because you really should. It's something that's just there always. In fact, then, it, you know, it, it actually height, it actually uh, raises the chance and the probability that you're going to get bored with it. But we say, well, it's, it's worth it because it's going to be there forming you regardless of whether you're bored with it or not. It's shaping you. 
to have a certainty in God's grace even when evidence is lacking for extended periods of time. And that's why Christians look to it and trust it for the long haul, for the long journey. It has that kind of effect. Not, we're not looking to it to produce this weekly ecstatic experience. Although because communion is something God has given us, and it seems to be, it seems to be saying, I will meet you here. You know, once in a while, there are these stories, and um, I've been able to have people tell me about them, and I've been able to read about stories where it does happen, a little more flashy. Let me read a little vignette from Tony Hendra's book called Father Joe. He talks about his, how he was just filled with all this doubt. What if the story of the resurrection was actually factually true? Not just an extra crowd-pleasing narrative twist, but a once-in-a-planet lifetime occurrence designed to demonstrate that there was hope after death and that, there was and that the resurrectee was everything he said he was. Then the world and the universe would be totally different places. True and good might even be attainable in life, as well as the self-evident evil. So he's having these doubts with these possible faith, and he's thinking these things through as he's sitting in an Easter service in a monastery, and then he says, and, and so this is a teenager, in the midst of all his doubts, and he says, as I took the host, so as he takes communion, a few minutes later, all the conflicting and confusing thoughts and feelings I normally experience, the usual objections and reservations and logical, sensible, common sense hesitancies were swept aside, fused into a whole of certainty. It was all perfectly natural. It all made perfect sense. This was bread, just as Christ had used bread. This was a meal, just as the Last Supper had been. How else would you take your God into yourself but through your mouth, consuming him in this ordinary, mundane way? The ordinary was the divine, where common sense met mystery, where logic kissed the cheek of the inexplicable, the immeasurable, immemorial spirit throbbing like veins beneath the hard gray asphalt of quotidian life. He says, as Mass ended, I ran from the church, unable to contain myself any longer, shoving aside the startled Catholics. I danced as I ran, yelled whatever came into my head, bits of songs, schoolboy whoops, Latin tags. I flung myself around in mad pirouettes. I tried to run up the trunks of trees. I began to scramble down the muddy promontory overlooking the solent and gave it up, jumping the last 15 feet or so and crashing in a heap on the pebble feeling nothing. I tore along the beach as if I were doing a victory lap, a happy champion, happier than I could ever remember being. Truth existed, and so did I, says Tony Henry, as he comes out of experiencing the Lord's Supper. So sometimes, sometimes, it's not boring, but I say usually, it is a little boring. There's other things going on. One of the common things communion kind of opens up for us is the fact that God loves us so deeply. It's in communion where love is expressed. It's like a gesture of relationship, like someone grabbing to hold our hand, like someone giving us a kiss on the cheek. It's God's love expressed and embodied and, in a sense, certain. I love what uh, another writer, Henry Nowen, has to say about this when he writes about a book about the Eucharist. He says, 
God not only became flesh for us years ago in that country far away, God also became food and drink for us now at this moment of the Eucharistic celebration. Right where we are together around the table, God does not hold back. God gives all. That is the mystery of the incarnation. That, that too is the mystery of the Eucharist. Incarnation and Eucharist are the, are the two expressions of the immense self-giving love of God. Listen to how he teases this out. He says, the whole long history of God's relationship with us human beings is a history of ever-deepening communion. It is not simply a history of unities, separations, and restored unities, but a history in which God searches for ever new ways to commune intimately with those created in God's image. He says, Augustine said, My soul is restless until it rests in you, O God. But when I examine the torturous story of our own salvation, I see not only that we are yearning to belong to God, but that God is also yearning to belong to us. It seems as if God is crying out to us. My heart is restless until I may rest in you, my beloved creation. From Adam to Eve to Abraham and Sarah... From Adam and Sarah to David and Bathsheba, and from David and Bathsheba to Jesus, and ever since, God cries out to be received by his own. I created you. I gave you all my love. I guided you, offered you my support, promised you the fulfillment of your heart's desires. Where are you? Where is your response? Where is your love? What else must I do to make you love me? I won't give up. I will keep trying. One day, you will discover how long, how I long for your love. God with communion is wanting to commune with us. There's a great power in human communing together because at the communion table, um, it flows that we're communing with God and it flows to communing together. Those two mysteriously become intertwined. Communing with one another is a powerful thing. Being together, no matter what the, the best technology that we now have, and many of you have possibly been on these calls over your computer screen where the person is there. I mean, that's the closest we get to, to, to communion without communion, to communing with someone. And yet, you know all the foibles and problems of a video call, all the things that can happen. On a video call, you get you get some good humanity there, but you can and I've done I'll admit I've done this. You can be you can have your phone up next to the screen. Don't tell me some of you haven't done this, and you can be checking a text message, and it looks like you're looking at the person on the screen. Some some message comes up from my wife, and there's a call, and someone I'm supposed to be looking at, and I put it right next to their face, and they can't tell that I'm not looking at them anymore. So you can cut, you know, there's it's not quite there. It's not quite communing. This week, um, I, I got the chance in, with Jake, um, our worship leader, to go um, to the county jail downtown. And we were there to visit Davion Smith, who's been our, um, our sound technician and our chair setup guy. And he's ended up in jail, and we're joining in his family and supporting him to get legal representation. And his, the lawyer that he's meeting with is trying to get things dismissed. Davion is grateful for your support and your prayers. And um, as we sat there and talked to him, uh, I was, we were kind of taking turns, you know, two of us were visiting one person, so I was able to glance over once in a while. 
And it, it, the, being in the jail in the visiting room is, is just totally not uh, up experience, right? In general, it's um, you're brought into a place that is um, that is heavy, and that is heavy with sadness and and um, other things. And so, as we're in this place, in this sense of being watched and being listened to by the guards, that um, I saw a mom come in with her little girl. I think she was about seven. She had the most delightful smile on her face. She had the most delightful face. Um, just this cute, amazingly cute little girl with a contagious smile on her face. And as she came in, she looked uh, like she had anticipation. She was excited about visiting. Um, it turned out her dad. And then as he, I was able to watch this, I was so struck by her, her smile. And then I was able to see it go get dialed up to 11 once he came around the corner. Uh, not even 11, like 100. I mean, it went from already an attractive, amazing smile to the, when she locked eyes and saw contact with her dad, to see this face, I, it's almost like I couldn't stop looking at her little face. It was so filled with delight, so filled with joy. And, I, and because it was so striking, and I, but I, just, I just kept looking. I kept uh, stealing glances to see this interaction between her and her dad. There's a thick wall of glass, and you have to talk uncomfortably to a, a phone that has a cord that's not long enough, and yet that didn't do anything to the communing that was happening there. Eyeball to eyeball, human to human, even with thick, bulletproof glass, is a powerful, powerful thing. God knows that about us. And God knows that in life, it's going to feel often like God is off somewhere, locked up, and can't get to you. And yet there's this, this table here, where we meet Jesus and where God communes with us. A very fascinating concept and um, astute observation about the Bible is made in the your Worship Guide by this writer, uh, I don't know how you say his name, Lycan Duncan. I'll give it a shot. He says this, in Genesis 3, Satan said to Eve and to Adam, take and eat this fruit they ate the fruit against God's command. And what was the result? Did it result in their satisfaction and fulfillment? No. It resulted in their being driven away from the presence of God. But at the Lord's table, the Lord himself invites us back into his presence. When Jesus says to his disciples, take and eat, he reverses the words of the serpent in the garden. Isn't that incredible? discovered that quote this week and I said, yeah, that is so insightful and amazing. It's the story, though, of the whole Bible. It's not just straight from the garden and then Jesus comes. There's a whole history and set of images and things that God does in his relationship with us to show us that all along he's been about communing with us and getting us back to the table with him. There's this incredible uh, part of the book of Exodus in one of the most unlikely places, all of a sudden you find this story about um, Moses and the leaders as God has just brought them out of Egypt and rescued them and saved them and they've celebrated the first Passover meal that would eventually be the meal that um, underlies our Lord's Supper. But something else is going on. There's another clue to God's communion with us. Let me read from Exodus 24, verse 8, and just soak in this experience. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on all the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
sort of like an ancient almost baptism with blood. But also those words become used within the context of this table. This is the blood of the covenant. Moses and Aaron, now listen to this, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up. So now we talked about communion is not always a mountaintop experience. These guys went up. And they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli. I don't think anybody knows what that is. As bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. They saw God and they ate and drank. Communion. But then it continues, and eventually the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments I have written for their instruction. And, and then we move forward, and then all of a sudden Moses goes a little higher, and then for six days a cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. There is a story right there that is just layered, just layered with pictures of how God, whether it's eating and drinking with God on the mountain, whether it's the sprinkling of blood, or whether it's Moses being invited up as like a representative of the people. And in Moses, all the people are kind of brought up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses communes with God. So there's this communion aspect to it, and that's why it's wonderful that we use the word communion. And there's also just a sense, lastly, I want to point out that the sense that kind of came out of the catechism, and is all throughout Scripture, the sense of sustenance. What is really feeding you What's really nourishing you? That's something that, that communion gets at. That's something that's a valuable question to be asking all the time in your lives. In fact, this table is, I mean, we could elaborate and we could have a meal every time we eat this. It would probably be an even better way to do this, is to actually have some kind of a meal. Um, and eat together. Because I think one of the things that's great about communion is that you can translate what's happening here into every meal you have. That means three times a day, although it may not have the same gravitas of doing this with other believers in a time like this, but you can three times a day as you eat, you can remember if this has been a part of your formation as you eat, every single thing you eat, you can, you can remember and you can kind of pray through the fact that just as real, to use the catechism language again, just as real as I eat this food, that's how real God is actually nourishing me in a more important way with all the things Jesus has done on my behalf, or as we talk about, with the gospel. There's this writer named Simon Tugwell. I think he's uh, an old, I think he's from like maybe 100 years ago, or, or maybe not that quiet, or maybe even older. I, did, I didn't look it up, but Simon Tugwell quotes an ancient medieval writer, English writer. So see if you can track with some of the words, because this is medieval English. And he quotes this amazing image by this medieval writer. He says, 
so doth God Almighty to his lovers in contemplation as a taverner that hath good wine to sell doth do to good drinkers that will drink well of his wine and largely spend. Are you following that? He's got a good drink and he wants to get to people who spend a lot to get that drink. And that's an image for God. Now well he knoweth what they be when he seeth them in the street. Privily he goeth and whispereth them in the ear and saith to them that he hath a clarity and that all find for their own mouth. He taketh them to house and giveth them a taste. Soon, when they have tasted thereof, and they think the drink good and greatly to their pleasure, then they drink day and night. Right? A real drunk. <laughs> then they drink day and night, and the more they drink, the more they want. Such liking they have of that drink, that of none other wine they think, but only for to drink their fill and to have of this drink all their will. And so they spend what they have. And then they spend or pledge their coat or hood in all that they may to drink with liking as long as they desire. Thus it fareth sometime by God's lovers that from the time that they had tasted of the sweetness of God, such liking they found therein that as drunken men they did spend what they had and gave themselves and gave of themselves. And then his little comment on it is this. God himself, like a shrewd taverner, has come to us first to seduce us from the narrow path of worldly duty to know the sweetness of his love. I love that imagery. And some of you know how much I love it because you've heard me at different times and places quote that exact thing, maybe not at that full extent. There are seasons in my life, I'm not in one over the last few months, but there are seasons in my life where I will regularly try to fast once a week. And I have, over time, developed some prayers that help me fast. And so, um, they might pop up as a reminder on my phone on the day of the prayer a couple different strategic times. And then the note of the, of the appointment, of the reminder, will be the prayer opening. And I have a like a fasting prayer and a feasting prayer. And in my in those prayers, let me share a couple of phrases and then we'll close. Um, one in, in the fasting prayer, I'll just I'll just share with you the phrase um, that I close that the prayer closes with, and that I often when I'm coming to take communion, often I, I kind of repeat these words to myself. Put your unglamorous food into my mouth and help me to trust it. Those words are powerful to me because it reminds me whenever I'm fasting or whenever I'm taking communion, it's, I just keep going back to the fact that in this world, I, there are things that I'm filling, not food things, but like other things that I'm using as my sustenance. I'm using to tell me that I'm okay or that I'm worthwhile or that I'm doing something good with my life or that God might accept me or my spouse might accept me or my parents might accept me. We have these things that we fill ourselves with. And it's sort of, if, we, if we're honest, it's maybe some, some of the things that come to us quickest when we wake up in the morning or, or that keep us from falling asleep late at night. And so it's in that prayer as I come forward for communion, 
put your unglamorous food in my mouth and help me to trust it. And that food, of course, is what Jesus has done for me. And that my worth has been settled through Jesus amidst all my um, messes. And then this is a prayer that I like to pray when I'm eating right after a fast or I'm about to eat. It also could be a prayer you pray as you come forward to communion. It could be a prayer you pray as you come to a meal. So these are, these are some words that I've used. God, I'm about to put some healthy food into my mouth. You have met me in this fast and fed me mysteriously. So now as I bite down, chew, and swallow, and reach for more, as I gulp and taste the sweet and savory flavors, I am celebrating what you have done through Jesus. I am feasting now. Because good news has come. You died for our sins. You're reconciling the broken world to yourself. You rose in victory over the grave. That is the food that fuels and energizes my life. Let's pray together. Our God, this teaching is so full of layers upon layers upon layers of things. What a gift to us that you have given us um, such a tangible sign to imprint on our lives the realness of your relationship with us and your love for us. We pray that through this and many other things that our lives may be captured by your love. Because of your Holy Spirit's work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.